And we're going through the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. And there's many wonderful benefits of preaching expositionally line by line. You make sure you teach the whole counsel of God. When you preach topically, there's a tendency to have a hobby horse. Your topic you love to preach on all the time. And other topics in the Bible that are very important to our growth get neglected. And so by preaching line by line, we, we hope to and trust that the Bible will cover everything we need for life and godliness, as the Bible says. But one of the difficulties of preaching expositionally is occasionally you come across a passage like a list of the Twelve Apostles. And you say, well, how do you preach a list? Well, we're going to do that today, and uh, bear with me. This will be instructional in a different kind of way this morning. There isn't um, a, a law of God to be proclaimed. There isn't a parable to be explained. There isn't one of these stories, which is my favorite thing to preach, like when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees about Sabbath laws. That kind of stuff, you get to those passages as a preacher and you say, oh yeah, this will preach. Just let Jesus do the talking. And we get to a list of 12 names. And as you're reading your Bible at home and studying it, the tendency would be to just gloss over. And yet, doesn't the Bible say that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for instruction and training in righteousness so that the man of God will be thoroughly equipped, lacking nothing? And so what does the Lord have for us in this list? Certainly, it's an official record of who the twelve apostles really were. I'm sure all kinds of posers popped up after Jesus left with claims of apostleship. So it's great that we have the official record of the twelve here. But what I'm hoping to show you this morning is a way to use everything you know about the Bible to draw principles out of a passage like this. Guiding principles, especially in this case this morning, on leadership. It's not an exhaustive teaching on leadership. It's not a three-part series on leadership. We're just going to look at Jesus choosing the twelve apostles and drawing some principles out of this story. It will also be an opportunity to show you the importance of biblical theology and systematic theology. Let me explain those terms to you this morning because the next discipleship class that'll start in February is on biblical theology and systematic theology. So the first module was how to rightly interpret God's word. And then from there we move, that's called hermeneutics. From there we move to biblical theology. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Isn't all theology biblical? Well, no. That's the problem, is most people do theology apart from the Bible, including us sometimes. We come up with answers to life's questions without going to the Word of God. And so part of our problem as fallen human beings is we 
filled in the blanks with our own wisdom. And as redeemed Christians, we understand the importance of going to the Word of God and having God tell us the way things really are and the way we should live. But biblical theology in seminary circles is a special name for doing theology where you take the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the whole of redemptive history, and you keep that in mind when you get to any particular passage to make sure that you don't make the passage say what it's not intended to say apart from the whole scope of the Bible. So that's biblical theology. From there, we move to systematic theology, which is a system for taking a topic and pulling out all the passages that the Bible has to say specifically about that topic so that we can draw some principles on that particular topic. It's important you do biblical theology before you do systematic theology because, again, because of our fallenness, we have a tendency to come up with our own ideas and then pull passages out of the Bible to back up our ideas. We call it proof texting. And if you've ever been in any kind of uh, debate with an unbeliever or even a believer who believes a little differently than you, everybody has their favorite verse, right? Or two. As Christians, though, we want to look at the entire scope of the Bible. And what biblical theology does for us is even if we do systematic theology and we think we've arrived at the right answer about a topic, biblical theology makes us go, yeah, something just doesn't sound right about that. That does not sound like the God of the Bible. That that doesn't square with his plans. I better get back into the Word of God and study some more. Because God would never contradict himself in his word. So if you didn't take the first module of the discipleship class, you could still take the second module. Again, it'll be Sunday afternoons, 3.30 to 5. Um, Starting in February, be looking on the church website for advertisements for that class. This morning, we will use some of those principles of biblical theology and systematic theology to look at this passage and draw some observations about Christian leadership. You could probably come up with even more uh, than I came up with, but I have eight of them for you this morning. That's plenty. Um, It took me way too long to get through them first service, but... I think I'll do better in consolidating what I have to say second service. So that's my uh, plan anyways. So let's read the passage first. Luke 6, chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, 
and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. If you're keeping score there, there's two Jameses and two Judases. And then someone else who was the son of a James, who's a completely different James than the other two Jameses. Are you following? Okay. Someday we'll meet the other Judas in heaven. And he'll say, I'm the other Judas. (laughs) The son of James. And a bunch of Jameses will say, not us. The other James. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. What a scene that must have been. And what follows is what's often called the Sermon on the Plain. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the Sermon on the Plain. It covers a lot of the same ground. In fact, many commentators think the Sermon on the Plain is the Sermon on the Mount just with, from Luke's perspective. Others think it's a completely different sermon and that it makes sense that Jesus would preach similar sermons as he went from region to region. We'll preach the Sermon on the Plain in the following weeks, but today we're just going to focus on verses 12 to 19 and make some observations about Christian leadership. Every family, organization, nation, or movement needs leaders. The Church of Jesus Christ is no different. Even as we come out of postmodernism that said there's no reason for leadership because there's no absolute truth, which was a completely failed experiment. Even the postmodern movement, as Al Mohler points out, the anti-leadership movement needed leaders. But the movement failed because the leaders were telling everyone, you don't need us. And you can make up your own truth. You can be your own leader. And that's a very exciting thing for all of us to hear until you try to live it. And then it's the blind leading the blind and everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And that's a recipe for disaster. And so the church needs leaders. Your home needs leaders. Your office needs a leader. Or multiple leaders would be even better. Frankly, the world doesn't know how to lead. Oh, God's common grace gives enough leadership ability for us to have cities and states and organizations and nations. But anyone check the news lately? How's the world doing in terms of leadership? It is a mess out there. They can't seem to agree on anything except that they all hate Israel, apparently. The UN all agreeing that 
Israel shouldn't exist anymore, that they're a hostile nation. But we would expect that because uh, the Bible tells us, the Bible tells us that will be the case. And that's exactly what we see happening. And those who bless Israel are blessed by God. And those who curse Israel will be cursed by God. So today I just want to glean some leadership principles from the Bible as we look at Jesus choosing the twelve and uh, introduce you a little to biblical theology and systematic theology. Please be in prayer for leaders of our church, our current leaders and future leaders. Church will always need godly leadership. And we'll be in prayer for leadership in your homes and in your circle of influence. The world will be transformed through Christian leadership. Through showing a better way, or as Paul said, a more excellent way. The, the way of love, the way of humility, the way of sacrificial leadership, the way of leading for the sake of glorifying God and not glorifying yourself or glorifying your organization or your company. Leadership that pleases God, not stockholders. This is the kind of leadership the world needs. And certainly Christ will return and our great leader will show the world what leadership really looks like. And he will make things, all things right. But in the meantime, he's not calling us to just quietly sit on the sidelines and let the world disintegrate before our eyes. It's tempting at times. I know, you're tempted, I'm tempted to just say, look, you guys, make your bed and go sleep in it. And yet, where would we be if Christ had said that to us? And so... Use this time of year to rest and recuperate and get back in the game. The world needs your Christian leadership. Principle number one. You should pray before choosing leaders. Jesus prayed to God the Father before choosing the apostles. Let's let that sink in a moment. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And yet when it came time to choose his 12, he spent the entire night in prayer with God the Father. I'd love to know what they were talking about. We know in John 17 what Jesus prayed to the Father about before he went to the cross. And that is a fascinating, privileged view into the personal prayer life of the Trinity. Something we don't deserve to be part of, and yet God gave us that privilege. But Jesus never acted autonomously while here on earth. He said that his will was to do the will of the Father, He's the metaphor of, that's my meat and my drink. That's what I live off of. That's what I live to do. If God the Son prays to God the Father, 
before making decisions, how much more do we need to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer as His spiritual children before we make decisions, especially when it comes to choosing leadership. So that, almost, that principle is almost like a, well, duh, of course we're going to pray. But this passage drives home the point that you probably haven't prayed enough. Jesus prayed all night long before choosing the twelve. These would be the men that he would use to launch a completely new movement that would turn the world upside down. Big moment in history. Huge moment. And what's fascinating to me is if you think about the context in which all of this was happening, you have the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire the world had ever seen, and he didn't choose anyone from that circle of leadership. And you had the Sanhedrin, the the 70, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, Sadducees. He didn't choose any of those guys. And so by all human reckoning, Jesus didn't choose anyone that you and I would have chosen. That ought to be instructive. So let's move to principle number two. This is God the Son after conference with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit chooses the twelve. God chooses Leaders. God chooses leaders. He does the choosing. I like to say, we do the acknowledging. It looks like we're selecting, and in very real ways we are choosing when we vote, when we nominate, when we ordain. But all leaders become leaders because it's God's sovereign will that those leaders become leaders. Have we not seen that all through our tour of the Old Testament? Even the leaders of the enemies of Israel were chosen by God for a specific purpose. Certainly we see that with Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus, who was chosen by God specifically to bring the exiles back to Jerusalem. God chose Abraham, an idolater. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God chose him. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. He chose Joseph, not his 11 brothers. He chose Moses and Joshua. People rejected God as their king, so he chose for them Saul. How do you like this as your leader? Not so much. So then he chose a man after God's own heart, David, as the king. And so the entire biblical record is one of God choosing leaders. Even Esther, a leader in her own right, chosen for such a time as this. In the right place, at the right time, with the right credentials, the right influence. That ought to give each of us confidence wherever God is calling us to be Christian leaders 
that He has hand-selected and prepared you by your life experiences and your gifting and the people you know and the things you've accomplished for such a time as this. Not in a way that makes you arrogantly overconfident. Well, of course, I'm the leader. Who else would be the leader? It's the kind of confidence knowing that God is behind you. He is upholding you. He is strengthening you. It's His power working in and through you to accomplish His will. He calls us to lead. It's one of those great mysteries of the faith. Wait a minute. Did we choose the leader or did God choose the leader? Yes. When it comes to For instance, choosing elders of the church. The Bible lays out clear instructions as to the fact that we should call elders a plurality of elders and they should be men of certain qualifications. And so we look for those men. And we don't say, hey, I think that guy would be a great elder. Let's give him the title and then hopefully he'll start shepherding people. We look for men who have a desire to shepherd people. They care about the kingdom. They love Christ. They love His Word. They're able to handle His Word. They may need some more instruction on how to handle His Word, but they have a gifting there. They care what happens to other people. They see suffering and they intervene. They see struggle and they intervene. They make themselves available. And we say, now there's a guy who looks like he'd be a good elder. And so we say rightly that in a human sense, we've chosen the elder. And yet we also understand that nobody's going to become an elder that God has not ordained to be in that position. So what kinds of people should we choose to be Christian leaders. The scripture says, And when day came, he called his disciples to him. Disciples are people who already were following Jesus and showing a commitment to follow him. So he chose his 12 leaders from among those who were already disciples. Not every disciple of Christ becomes an official leader in the church, But every Christian leader must first be a disciple. Does that make sense? Some churches have this strategy where, hey, maybe if we give that person a title, they'll step up to the plate and start really following Jesus. That's a horrible idea. Completely unbiblical. Completely unbiblical. Jesus chose his 12 from among the disciples, his followers. Now, we don't get to hear his decision-making process on why these 12. I'm dying to know. But I trust that there's a good reason why we're not told. Probably because we would see it as prescriptive. Okay, we need to go find a fisherman... And a tax collector, 
We need someone brash and overconfident. We, no, we don't look at the example and say this is exactly how we do it. We draw biblical principles using other texts, other examples. And wherever the text teaches more clearly, we let the more clear texts explain less clear texts. So if all you did was use this passage before you were choosing Christian leaders, you wouldn't have a whole lot to go on. Thankfully, we have the epistles that delineate clearly what kinds of people we choose to be Christian leaders. I think, though, it's safe to say that there was some raw material here that God had already put into these men. You don't run your own fishing business if you don't have some leadership qualities. The thing about leaders is you can give someone a title, but if nobody follows, they're not a leader. Oh, sure, in certain areas, if someone has a title and you're forced to submit to their leadership, it works. But not effectively. Not effectively. My father was a Marine in Vietnam and he would tell me stories of fresh lieutenants coming over. And they were always like, what kind of man is this going to be? And they had to follow his command whether he was a leader or not. And they would be frightened at some of these lieutenants that came over. This guy is going to get us all killed. He hasn't bothered to ask anyone who's been over here for any length of time whether or not that decision is a good decision. Our family likes to watch White Christmas every year. And you see how much the troops love the general in that movie. And there's a great line in there where Bing Crosby says, we ate and then he ate. We slept, and then he slept. And then they sing that great song about, we love him, we love him. Like, wow, that is really interesting to hear soldiers singing that they love their general. But you understand, this uh, must have struck a chord back when our nation was more Christian than it is today. Loving, sacrificial leadership will always be the best most effective kind of leadership. When you know your leader cares about you and would lay down their life for you, that makes it easy to follow that kind of person. And isn't that the kind of leader Jesus was? The Son of Man came to be served or serve? To serve. Shouldn't he have been served? Didn't he have the prerogative to be served? Didn't he have the authority to be served? But no, he wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet and laid down his life literally for us all on the cross. I mentioned uh, to the men the problem with leadership in the Corinthian church. I wanted to read an excerpt to you from a book on leadership by Al Mohler, the leader of the Southern Baptist Seminary, and really I'd say kind of the figurehead of the Southern Baptist 
church. When they need a quote, they, they call Al Mohler. He writes in his book on leadership that wherever Christian leaders serve in the church or in the secular world, their leadership should be driven by distinctively Christian conviction. The last three decades have seen the emergence of a renaissance in leadership, and the deep hunger for leaders has never been more evident than now. That's because the emergent church and postmodernism had left a huge void in leadership. They were saying things like, we don't need the sage on the stage. We just need a guide on the side. You do what you want to do, I'll go do what I want to do, and hopefully it'll all work out. And that is not what Jesus modeled for us or instructed us to do as a church. Like me, you want to grow as a leader in order to be ready for all the leadership opportunities you may be called to accept. So what is the problem? It is not a lack of interest or a shortage of books and seminars or a dearth of leadership development programs, nor is the problem a lack of attention to what leaders do and how they do it. The problem, as he sees it, is a lack of attention to what leaders believe and why this is so central. The problem is that the evangelical Christian world is increasingly divided between groups he calls the believers or the visionaries. I'm sorry, the the believers versus the leaders. And really he's saying those who are really focused on doctrine and those that just want to go lead, we got to do it now, we got to go, let's go, let's, let's run with this. The believers are driven by deep and passionate beliefs. They are heavily invested in knowledge and they are passionate about truth. They devote themselves to learning truth, teaching truth, defending truth. They define themselves in terms of what they believe and they are ready to give their lives for these beliefs. It all sounds like good things, right? That's what we'd want in a leader. The problem is many of them are not ready to lead. They have never thought much about leadership and are afraid that thinking too much about it will turn them into mere pragmatists, which they know they shouldn't be. They know a great deal and believe a great deal, but they lack the basic equipment for leadership. As one deacon said of his pastor, oh, he knows a lot, but he can't lead a decent two-car funeral procession. That's... (laughs) The natural-born leaders, on the other hand, are passionate about leadership. They are tired of seeing organizations and movements die or decline. They want to change things for the better. They look around and see dead and declining churches and lukewarm organizations. They are thrilled by the experience of leading and are ardent students of leadership wherever they can find it. They talk leadership wherever they go, and they're masters of motivation and vision and strategy and execution The problem is that many of these are not sure what they believe or why it even matters. They are masters of change and organizational transformation, but they lack a center of gravity and truth. And so they often ride one program after another until they run out of steam, and then they wonder, what next? These are leaders that um, leave churches after three, four years. They're looking for the next big challenge, the next big thing. And that decimates a church because just when you're starting to trust the leader, he, he, he leaves and often says, 
well, these people just won't, you know, light a fire under themselves. I don't know what else to do. And so they blame their lack of leadership on the people they're trying to lead. So what we're looking for is a combination of the two. To be rooted and grounded in what you know and be passionate about what you know. This is the truth. And when things don't seem to be working, you don't jettison the truth for plan B. There is no plan B. This is plan A through Z. The way, though, we go about doing ministry, now there's, that's where we have room for planning and organizing and changing up ministries. Every year we require a ministry of this church to submit a map, a ministry action plan. How did the year go? Did you accomplish your goals? What changes do you need to make? What resources do you need from the church? What kind of help do you need? Do we even need that ministry anymore? Is it time, as Mike always says, to put a fork in it? And we should be able to say that. It's okay. It served its purpose for that time. And now God's launching a new ministry. Principle number four, God often chooses unspectacular people to be Christian leaders. People's exhibit A. Lump me in with the apostles, just regular people, fishermen, tax collectors, a zealot. who's kind of like a rebel without a clue. Ragtag group. All Galileans, which means in Israel they weren't highly regarded. In our culture, that would be equivalent to the California, New York crowd being the Judeans, the southern Israelis. And the Galileans in the north would be the flyover. That includes Kern County. (laughs) You know, clinging to their guns and their God. Those kind of folks. And yet that's exactly the kind of people Jesus called to be his twelve. No scribes, no Pharisees, no Sadducees, none of the chief priests, none of the elders. With the exception of Paul, he came later. It's not that he doesn't want gifted people, and Paul was gifted in the scriptures and so commissioned by God to write two-thirds of the New Testament. That makes sense. But major things had to happen in Paul's heart before he was of any use to the Lord. Amen? Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's uh, hyperbolic language, you know, going to the extreme here. Uh, we're the things that are not, according to the world. No, no one 
is going to find us impressive. To bring to nothing, quote unquote, the things that are, you know. All the popular movers and shakers, all the ideas and philosophies of the day, all the bestsellers. God is using the nobodies to bring to shame the somebodies. God is using his wisdom, which the world considers foolishness, to bring down that which the world says is real wisdom. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This also ought to give us great confidence to be Christian leaders. Christian leadership is the one job in the world where the first and most important qualification is having a firm grasp of your own inadequacy for the job. Any other job interview, this, this ends the interview. So well, tell me, why should I hire you for this job? I have no idea. I'm completely inadequate. I'm selfish. I'm going to make everything all about me. Right? Well, there's the door. Don't call us. We'll call you. But this is, this is the first quality we're looking for in Christian leadership. I'm unworthy. I'm inadequate. Who's adequate for these things, Paul says? You're talking about matters of eternal life. He said to some, we're an aroma of life unto life. To those who reject the gospel, an aroma of death unto death. Who is adequate for these things? No human being's adequate for this. If our job is just to make a nice country club here, we're adequate. We could, we could do it. If our job is to lead others into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is going to take more than us. It's going to take the Holy Spirit. Amen? It's going to take the Word of God. And these are more than adequate. And so Paul talks about this treasure being in these earthen vessels. That's a nice way of saying chamber pots. You know, we're, we're not the beautiful, expensive vases or vases, if you will, were the everyday crockery, cracked and looked over by the world. But that way the gospel shines more brightly in us and through us. So uh, we have this list of apostles and really a very unimpressive, unspectacular list of men like from worldly standards really this is who's gonna launch your movement this is your team these guys spend the whole day arguing with each other over who's the best one of them was known as a doubter right thomas Though the apostles were unspectacular, though they were chosen for a spectacular calling. So there's a principle. Even though we're unspectacular people, what we're called to do is quite spectacular. It's the most important calling 
in the universe for a human being. So don't sell yourself short. Whatever God is calling you to do in Christian leadership, it's important. It's of ultimate importance. I don't care what your title is in the secular world and and how much responsibility you have. If it isn't ultimately leading people to Christ, it pales into comparison to what you do Wednesday night at Awana. Let's put things in an eternal perspective here. Now, these 12 had a very special calling, different than any one else. Very privileged calling. They would be the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone, right? That's the first stone the architect lays down, and that needs to be a perfect stone in just the right place. Otherwise, all the other stones will be out of place. Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets who gave us the word of God and sound doctrine is the foundation for the church. Ephesians 2.19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We don't lay a new foundation. We have the foundation. It's been laid. We're building on 2,000 years of church history, starting with the apostles. So many in Christianity want something new. They're looking for something new. They've given up on what's been given to us. They want a fresh word from God. This is the word from God. They want a different approach. Many are calling for us to abandon the age-old notion of the church and even using the, that language. Well, nobody's going to want to come to a church. Now, we may need to make changes about how we do church if we've drifted from the Word of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are people in evangelicalism who want to completely jettison everything we've been doing for 2,000 years. Because it's not going to reach this multicultural society. As if multiculturalism hasn't been around since the Tower of Babel. The church needs to look more like the world so people will be attracted to the church. Then the church isn't the church anymore. You can't outdo the world. We, we could make the church attractive to the world, but then we would be totally irrelevant next week. Have you seen how fast fads are changing now that there's social media? So we have this spectacular calling. Ephesians 3, 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Spirit of God revealed to the twelve apostles through Jesus' teaching and then even after his teaching by the Spirit of mysteries that even godly men and women for generations were dying to know. They had been revealed to the apostles. 
the mystery of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, the mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the mystery of his return and what that will look like. And we have that recorded for us. We're in this privileged position. Yes, the apostles are far more privileged than we were, but we benefit from the privileges they were given. We get to know the mind of Christ. Wow. That's biblical language there. We have the mind of Christ. At one time, Christ taught in the upper room that, yes, I'm the master and you're the slave. And the the slave is no better than his master. But then he says that I now call you friends because masters don't tell their slave the plan. They just say, go do this, don't ask questions. Jesus has told us the plan and he says, you're now friends. Hey, let me let you in on the family secrets here. Now, some of what he reveals to us is way behind, beyond our comprehension in this world. And we have all eternity to learn more and more of the mysteries of God and we'll never run out. That's exciting to me. Never get bored of God. Never get to the end of God. Always something new to be amazed by. By the way, there were the 12 here. Of course, Judas abandoned Jesus. He was replaced early in the book of Acts. But this term apostle, meaning sent ones, from the verb apostello, um, was also by the early church uh, given to anyone who met certain criteria. Having directly seen Jesus, there's a list of criteria. But when we say the 12, we're specifically talking about these men. So Paul can rightly call himself an apostle, but not one of the original 12. But the Lord is not adding any new apostles. And there was a movement that started about 30, 40 years ago called the New Apostolic Reformation. It became very popular in evangelicalism. And whether you know it or not, you were affected by it because they wrote a lot of books, a lot of music. And so you were introduced to the New Apostolic Reformation if you knew it or not. And they were teaching that God was raising up a new generation of apostles. And the leader of that movement died this week, C. Peter Wagner. And I'm pretty sure no one will be reading any of his books 2,000 years from now. And he may have done some great things for Christianity, and God will be his judge, and God will be all of our judges. The last day, uh, by placing our faith in Christ, there's now no more condemnation, but the Bible says all of our works as Christians will be judged by God. And so I trust that's already happened. And if he was not to be telling people he was an apostle, he was not only teaching that God was raising up new apostles, but lo and behold, he was one of them. 
then he'll have to answer to his Lord for that teaching. We believe biblically that God is not raising up any new apostles. No one with the authority to write scripture, to speak apart from what scripture already tells us. Nobody has that apostolic power to heal on command immediately like the apostles had. God heals today through our prayers. and Amen. And the power always came from God, but God gave that power to the twelve to authenticate that their message was indeed the true message of the faith. Sixth observation is that the list is all men. And there might be some in here that that doesn't sit well with you. And perhaps you're saying, well, that makes sense because back then that's the only people who could be apostles. But if Jesus was anything up till now in Luke's gospel, he's been countercultural. He'll do whatever he wants. He is Lord. He will work on the Sabbath. He will pick grain on the Sabbath. He will heal on the Sabbath. He will eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus loved women and treated them with more respect than any figure we see in history up to that point. In fact, he reset the whole standard of how women would be treated. And yet, in his providence and in his wisdom, he chose 12 men. And the Bible instructs us when it comes to eldership of the church that those offices are to be held by men. And so we can learn from that. And we see, again, they weren't spectacular men. This has nothing to do with worthiness. Submitting to another person does not make you inferior. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. And yet he's fully God. He's not inferior to God the Father. The world needs leaders. It's the way God's designed things to happen. It's the way things work. And God determines how leadership will work in his church. Seventh observation is not all the leaders were good. (laughs) Judas was a traitor. That still blows my mind that they knew he was going to be a traitor and chose him anyways. Jesus says this in John chapter 6. So long before Judas betrays him, he knew one of them would be a traitor. And yet he allowed Judas to be close to him and he loved Judas. And I can't imagine being able to do that. You know, we often think that if God would tell us the future, we'd have more confidence and less anxiety. I'm coming to believe that just the opposite is true, and I thank him that I don't know what's coming. Other than that, I know I'm loved. I know I'm forgiven. I know Jesus is coming back. Other than that, we need to trust God for the rest. And not convince ourselves that I can't be 
vulnerable in love with these people because what if they hurt me? Oh, they're human beings. They will. And you'll hurt them. Question is, what will you do afterwards? Will you seek forgiveness? Will you offer forgiveness? Well, what if we choose leaders in the church and one of them is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last. But we need leaders. What if I step forward to lead and I blow it? Oh, you will. Will you learn from your mistakes? Will you humble yourself? That's, that's the question. Abraham struggled to trust God many times. Until finally on Mount Moriah, he put his son on the altar and trusted God completely. Moses was reluctant to lead, hiding for 40 years. And then coming up with excuses. Well, who am I to lead your people? And I've got speech impediment, right? And God says, who do you think made your speech impediment? I mean, that's crazy. You think about your shortcomings and all your excuses for not stepping up to lead. And who do you think gave you those shortcomings? They're from God. To keep you humble and keep you dependent on him. And God gave Moses his brother to help him. God will give you help. Saul was disobedient. David committed adultery and murder. Peter was overconfident and headstrong and denied Christ three times in front of a weak little slave girl. Even Paul, the mighty apostle, was prideful. God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him from boasting. And he had a lot to boast about. Timothy was timid. And on and on the list goes. So we're not looking for perfect people to lead. We're looking for humble people dependent on God. And certainly, certain leadership positions are going to require certain giftings. And we see that in the Bible. God gave some to be apostles, some to be teachers, some to be evangelists. And so certain leadership positions are going to require certain skills. Eldership, most of the character, most of the qualifications are character qualifications, but it does say that you are able to teach. That office requires you to be able to handle the word of, of God. Kathy Kelly's our ministry leader, our worship leader. If she couldn't read music, probably the wrong person. So that's a qualification for leading worship. But I'm trying to help you this morning. I know most people shy away from leadership. And yet, if you are a Christian, God's calling you in some way, shape, or form to lead. The final observation is that the authority to lead comes from Jesus. It's, it's not dependent on, on you. It doesn't come from you. It's not in and of you. The authority to lead comes from Jesus. Therefore, the focus belongs on Jesus. That ought to free you up. I'm not making disciples of myself. I don't have to be the kind of leader that is so impressive that people will want to follow and do things the way I do. Uh, 
that's a lot of what this last presidential race was about. Two people trying to convince the country that I'm awesome. And all we wanted was somebody to convince us that, look, this country needs some changes. I'll be the person to help, and then I'll fade away. And that's the way our country was designed. A plurality of leadership, separation of powers, so nobody gets too much power because power corrupts. That we're all in this together and that when we delegate a leader to lead us as a nation or a people or as a church, it's not for someone to lord it over us. But for this time and in this place, we're designating you to have authority over us. That's exactly what leadership is from the Lord. He's delegated authority to us for a time, for a season, in a specific sphere of influence. When Jesus came down with them, the twelve, this this just blew me away. Here we have a list of the twelve apostles. If you were writing a book about how you were launching this movement that was going to change the world, and you just announced in your book the 12 men you were going to use to launch the movement, wouldn't the next thing you write tell us all about these men and their giftedness and their accomplishments? And what do we get immediately after the list of the 12? Listen, Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him. And to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him. For power was coming from him. In healing them all. You get the picture. It's all about Jesus. It's, it's our vision statement for the church. We're all about Jesus. We adore Jesus by learning from Jesus so that we'll love like Jesus. It's all about him. In our leadership, we emulate him for the purpose of bringing people to him so they can become like him and bring other people to him. Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, every person, every woman and child, and teaching all with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So we'll look a little more closely at the lives of the apostles in the, in the coming weeks. Father God, thank you for our commander-in-chief, our CEO, our good shepherd, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, the lover of our souls, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. May we proclaim him in whatever area you've called us to Christian leadership. Lead people to Christ, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded so they can go out and lead others to Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you. Happy New Year. Go, go out and lead the world to Christ.